Hello everybody and welcome back to the isolation station. I am your host Dan Fuller and I am joined by Ant Hurley. Ant, what's going on? Hey man, yeah I'm good, how are you? I'm very well, just kind of kind of trapped in the drudgery like everybody else. <laughs> I've like caught myself just like pottering around the house for like no reason, like getting up and going downstairs and then realising that there's nothing to do and just returning. <laughs> Yeah, I, love, I love that. You feel that as if you walk to another room, things are going to change somehow. Yeah. <laughs> Shape-shifting. Enjoying the timelessness. Um, and also editing podcasts. That's what I've been up to. Indeed, yeah. Um, we have another exciting guest with us today. Mm. Today we're joined by Naveen from Seagull Books in Calcutta, who uh, specialise in literature and translation, yeah. um, world literature and translation, and also have a lot of interesting side projects going on in bookmaking and design and even kind of community peace projects and yeah, yeah loads to talk about. Yeah, it was a great interview. It's, it's quite interesting to have kind of like, we've kind of had a two-part Calcutta series now, so it's quite interesting to hear another mm. uh, Calcutta-based publisher talking, but from a kind of very different perspective to Mandira, who came on last month now. God, I'm losing track of time. But yeah, hopefully you're all going to enjoy it. And I think that's quite enough from us. And do you have any jokes or anything? Any, <laughs> remar- any remarks? Uh, remarks? No, I'm going to pass and just say enjoy <laughs> the conversation, I think. <laughs> all right, that, that's that. That's us. All right. Good morning. Uh, welcome back to Burley Fisher's Isolation Station. We are broadcasting from London, but also today, Calcutta. We're speaking to Naveen from Seagull Books. Hello, Naveen. Hi. How are you doing today? I'm all right. One more day of confinement in our uh, curfew-like lockdown situation. Yeah. Um, how's, it, how's it going there with um, the lockdown in Calcutta and... It's reasonably strict compared to a lot of other countries in the sense that uh, I mean, you, as long as you have access to essentials, you know, we stay in a kind of condominium of you know, uh, blocks of buildings and so on and so forth. And there are people who are supplying things on certain days. So you know, you're, you're getting your basics, as it were. And some of it is um, right outside your gate. But um, you you can't really carry your offices with you, you know, because we had like four hours of notice, and um, some of us, my editorial colleagues and I, I mean, you know, we could take what we could take on our machines, but you know, the, the book, as you know, the book publishing, uh, you can just do so much and get a book ready. And then it gets all fractured like it has now, both the mm. chain and the time. We sort mm. of, um, uh, yeah, there's so, no printer. Sorry? So, oh, yeah, so that's affecting the actual printing of the books, obviously, and the, the distribution and, you know. Yeah, the whole thing, the chain from printing to shipping to distribution. Of course, you know the fate of all booksellers, you know, all of that. And, um, and there's just that much you could do on the digital space, beyond a certain yeah. point. Yeah, um, I mean, just quickly on that, um, mm. have you looked into ebooks and um, 
um, making them more available or yeah we do everything that we publish i don't know if you know this but you know we first of all we have world rights for everything we do right um and we specialize 70 percent of what we do is translations from different languages european languages so typically all our books are available as ebooks but it's all very serious literary stuff so it's not as if it's a vast revenue mm. um but the online as i understand it is when you as a physical bookseller uh, killing yourself trying to run a skeletal service of deliveries either outside your door or Yeah. the Americans doing curbside stuff or friends at city lights on Elliot Bay but oh, you know, wow. that's, that, but that's 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 with stock that's with you because the warehouses are shut we had just to keep things alive we had been offering for the last this whole month free book a day a kind of download your pdf not like an ebook because you don't need a kindle because mm-hmm. the indian reality is not a kindle uh, yes. you have a little devices so you just do it on your whatever computer So that's been very exciting. It's we've just checked. It's driven in about twenty days, something like thirty-eight thousand people to the website. How many? How many of those are buying books? I don't know. We'll find mm-hmm. out. Uh, but yeah, so some of that is happening. But um, I'm a little confused about uh, about the what appears to be a kind of desperate faddishness to sort of just get more and more onto the digital space. I don't mean. book selling but the the these sort of activity that you and I as book people would want to generate conversations uh, events and you know some of it can perhaps happen but you know there's just that much theater and performance you could do on zoom i mean you know it's 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 not the same thing it's not flesh and blood so some of those things are confusing me a little bit It is. We we were just speaking this morning as a shop about the fact that we might not potentially be able to do events for quite a while because of social distancing mm-hmm. and how that's such a lifeblood of what we do as an independent shop is bringing authors yeah. in and getting people in. So absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah. Talking just quickly, you you mentioned theatre there. Um, so Seagull was um, founded um, about thirty five years ago now, and um, in the early years, it was it was. There was a focus on Indian theatre and cinema, wasn't there, in the kind of early origins of the publisher? Yeah, I uh, well, it's what this is our third year. Eighty-two is where we began, and um, I came into it overnight. I used to design theatre lighting for a living, right. and um, that's how I supported the family. I had to start earning very early in life for various reasons, and um, Siegel started with the desire to. document contemporary theater in india and cinema we we used to have a very sort of um, uh, uh, lively cinema scene for a kind of 10 year spell which uh, historically is known as the new indian cinema at that point with people like satyajit ray vinod mm. sen shyam benegal so we used to do film scripts and theater scripts and that's how we began and um, much later to, changed into something else but uh, yes the beginnings were in theater and cinema so that shift kind of towards literature and um the translation of books um what what prompted that was it just uh, growing well it was no it happened in 2005 where specifically it was a specific moment which was when you look at things retrospectively you want to give them 
uh, exciting labels like political. So um, I noticed that, you know, some of my colleagues, I found that just about every English language publisher, you know, from the Hatchets and the Bloomsbury's and the Random Penguins and Penguin Random, whatever, everything was settling down a new day because we were this vast English-speaking nation and a new market. Also, there was a baggage which went back almost seven decades, which we had inherited, which was traditionally, and this is the so-called political part in retrospect, the English-speaking West has always expected us to buy rights for India, not for the world. So we changed that. We decided we would buy only world rights. And that experiment started in 2005 when I set up a company in London called Seagull Books, London Limited, and which for the first 14 years now of its existence has refused to be the kind of organization that rushes to have an architectural present and a staff. And the idea is that if it is a globalized world, let's call it bluff and say that you and I can be anywhere in the world as long as we deliver a courteous looking object, the book, and a courteous distribution network. So that's what we do. We produce everything in Canada. We print in England, we print in America, we print in Delhi. Uh, we distribute through Yale and Chicago. So it's an interesting model. It's 500 books old already since 2005. Wow. And um, all of these are world rights. And if you look at the list, it's a, I mean, it is an esoteric list. But then yes, yes. we started when translation was not the flavor of the month it is now. Because now, wonderful friends everywhere. You're surrounded by them. I'm surrounded by them in England, in America, doing the most exquisite translations. But yeah. at 2005, your and my bookshelves were bereft of translated literature because it didn't pay. So, mm. you know, I'd like to believe there's a little contribution there somewhere. Definitely, yeah. Just on translation, I read a brief, uh, I, I think an interview with you, um, where you were kind of addressing the nuances of um, translating, you know, the voice of uh, a writer like Thomas Bernard, who that sort of dark satire and mm -hmm. challenges of um, translating that in a true um, way and keeping that authenticity of the voice or the characteristics. Um, what do you find the main sort of challenges are with translating and translation, and how do you find the people that you trust to um, do that huge kind of task? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean. To me, it's always been a kind of, uh, what shall I say? I mean, it's, been a, it's always been an act of intimacy, this, this business of um, translation. You, know, you, you need to be, of course, obviously and predictably, desperately in, in adoration of the text that you're about to take on. And uh, you need to sort of... Um, be able to locate people who are capable of um, buying into that sort of a philosophy. And when I first started to do translation, in fact, the first thing we ever did was Jean-Paul Sartre. It was 100 years of Sartre, and we just yeah. set up Seagull London 2005, and we went to Gallimard. We got three wonderful volumes. And I scouted around, and instead of cutting corners and saying, I must find somebody in New Delhi or XYZ who will do this cheaply for me because they know the languages, we went 
to Chris Turner, the man who was doing SARC. So you always go to people who are already a Thomas Bernard voice, Martin Chalmers at that point. Um, and it starts like that. And because I don't speak the languages, I first guard the archives of all these wonderful German and French publishers because I grew up reading translations, so I knew the names and that, that kind of classical stuff. So the first round was easy enough because you found the text and you found the translators. It was the next bit that was tricky because you then turned to that initial core group of translators and said, hey guys, don't you have a wish list? And there was silence initially because publishers are not supposed to ask translators they have wish lists, and, but it opened up yeah. a wonderful uh, network, a kind of uh, a, a protective nurturing space of people who came to you because they had access to new writing, which I had no way of accessing. And then, of course, you could go wrong you, yeah, because, you know, you, you sometimes have, we have enough examples of failure where, um, so typically a translator comes to you at a Frankfurt book fair and says, you just have to get me this book. This is a 26-year-old Swiss German writer, et cetera, et cetera. And you get it for them. And they do a beautiful book. It does well. Then the author writes a second book. And you go back, obviously, to the same translator who translates it. And then the author hates it, saying, I'm sorry. And then, and then the author takes you through why she is sorry this is not working. Mm. What do you do? So then you turn to the translator, and if the translator is adamant and said, no, I know best, you pay the translator, and then you spend more money doing five, six samples till the author is pleased, mm. and this actually happened, and it happened more than once. Yeah. Because ultimately the author and what they create, and therefore that voice. So there's no sort of set methodology. You have to be able to not just do the literal thing, right? Yeah. Or as a translator, you cannot decide that an English-speaking audience cannot take the breathlessness of a 20-page sentence, right? So you punctuate it to make it convenient. So there's all these sort of issues that come up, right? There's no... Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's interesting that out of the first... I remember telling somebody that after the first 300-odd books, there were three I was disappointed with. And remember, I go into it blind. It's only after you've translated it for me, mm. and I read it 11 months later, that I say, wow, that was wisely chosen. Mm. Mm. Um, so the kind of discourse around translation is, is of great interest to a lot of people. But I, I kind of wanted to open up the discussion a little bit and talk about when you're taking a piece of literature that comes from a specific social context or a specific cultural context or a specific time, um, what kind of ethical issues and what kind of aesthetic issues do you feel surround um, that process? And how does that uh, intersect with um, the author-translator relationship? I often get questions close to this about, especially about the cultural context of a small town in Germany mm -hmm. being translated into. Because initially, 
everybody looks at me as a publisher in a particular time and place and nation, right? Yeah. Um, very few understand the fluidity of the Seagull project, which is that we're everywhere and yet we aren't anywhere really. But mm -hmm. by birth, we're based in Calcutta. So mm -hmm. to me, the context is always the human condition. Mm -hmm. So when somebody says, so what is it that makes you choose and for what kind of a target audience and how, I mean, why should this particular village in Germany at all resonate with you in New Delhi or Calcutta mm -hmm. or even in London for that matter? And I just have, you know, I, I don't have a specific answer, but I always fall back on the human condition that if it resonates with you, the emotion, and that's yeah. what the translator has to capture. Yeah. You cannot go changing names. You cannot change locale. Mm -hmm. It is what it is, because after all, that's what has drawn you into that text to begin with, yeah. you having decided to choose that. And to come back to this business of the untranslatable, mm -hmm. I think we need to exist parallelly with these emotions. It's true. I mean, even I, I write, for example, I write every day, not to be published, though there is that little desire to be discovered one day as a writer. Mm -hmm. But publishers who write, people take for granted will publish their own shit. But unless you're T.S. Eliot, there's no point doing it because you lose money. So the, 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 the occasionally, for friends who don't read English, I have them translated into, say, Hindi. Or, or, and I find that I just can't get it, that rhythms don't work, no matter how wonderful they are. So mm -hmm. am I therefore admitting that it's untranslatable, the drivel I write, or what is it? So you get, you have to be able to transpose into that mix. It's a kind of transformation. It's almost like, you know, inhabiting the author in a certain kind of way. I know it sounds like mm -hmm. romantic mishmash, that you inhabit somebody like a ghost or possess them. But that's how close you need to get. That's why I spoke about intimacy. You need mm. to get close to the text. So in that sense, but you also have to live parallelly with that little sign that, yes, I wish we could all read languages and leave it untranslatable. But then mm. where you and I would not be having this conversation if we had not no, ventured into indeed. reading languages in the ones we understand. So. I think what this will carry on. I mean, it's a perfectly wonderful notion. Yeah, yeah. Just to take it away from the kind of the more language-based, a huge part of this kind of seagull ethos seems to be the design of the books, and they are incredibly striking as physical objects. And yeah. um, you you also run a book design course, right? That you founded. Um, for people to get into publishing and book design. Um, what, what does it mean to you, like how important, you know, the, the look and feel of a book um, from, you know, because it can really just work in a bookshop. It can do such a disservice to a book when it doesn't look great or the paper's cheap or you just don't want to hold it. And it, it it's a whole physical experience, I think, reading because you're, you know, you have this object in your hand. So what, what kind of drives you to make these books as beautiful as they are and, how do you think that plays into someone's experience of reading them? Well, uh, first of all, you, I don't know if you know this, but every single single book for the last 19 years has been designed by one person. 
a woman called Shunandini Banerjee, who is also Seagull's chief editor. She came into our life as a student fresh from university 19 years ago. Before that, I used to personally design myself. Now, I can't draw. I had taught myself. I do photographs. I, I do design. I used to do design at that point. But when she came in, we discovered accidentally that she came in as an assistant editor, but she had a flair for the visual and the image making and a wonderful sensibility, streets ahead of mine. And slowly she went on to be both badly what she came for, which is editing, and also the designer. It's a tough act. But that was a time when a distributor would tell you the UK market can take this kind of cover. The US market needs this kind of cover. And we brought that. It's the same sensibility that works from Japan to America to whatever else in the world. It's that one edition. We have two different covers yeah. and different things. The sense of aesthetic came. I suspect it could have been. I mean, when people force me to think like this, it's, it's, it's something to do with spaces in the theater. Uh, you know, I, I've always mm. been able to turn an empty space into something with two, three, four, or 49 spotlights without mm. any setting. And um, this the sort of sense that you don't always light people. People learn to take light as they move in and out of language on a stage. Some of that could have been the early beginnings of a aesthetic that led into and remember, we straddled technologies. I came into publishing when we were doing blocks and we were making letterpress and linotype and then the offset and computers came in. So you straddled uh, different technologies and you therefore had different ways of dealing with design. And we also had a huge baggage in India where we were traditionally seen as the kind of black hole of production. Your books came apart. They didn't look so good. So we took the same paper the same block makers, same printers, and started creating objects of beauty because there was some internal drive towards this business, as you said, of touch and feel. And mm. later, when everybody and every single interviewer would say, aren't you terrified of the electronic? And I'd say, no, we use the electronic to use. We're perfectly comfortable with all kinds of realities and QR codes. And we've mm. done books where you can download a smart app and the Kentridge's films come alive from a picture. But we choose to do this object which has to have the best of everything. And it's not just cover design. It's the breathing space inside for mm. the text, right? You don't have those tight margins because you have to cut down on 30 pages. You just have to spend it and, you know, and to hell with it. So we started in 2012 a Siegel School for Publishing. It's like just, just to share 30, 32 years of experience with a bunch of young people. And that's where we do our publishing and design. It's has, it happens from January to March each year. Uh, though now suddenly, because of this, this strange, irrational time, it's, it's threatened. We have no resources. Um, mm. But, you know, we, we'll see what happens. I mean, I keep telling people that we cannot be part of a, a culture that does a kind of mathematical algorithm that says 
get rid of 20 people because that's we can't afford them. You have to carry the people with you. You have to continue to do, you continue to pay, all of that. And you have to pick up the debris once you know where it's fallen. So we have to wait for this time to, it won't get over. It will always be pushed to the margins, right, mm -hmm. this virus. It's going mm -hmm. to be with us for the rest of our lives for various reasons, political ones, authoritarian ones, human ones, whatever. But we will have to survive in whichever form, in different ways. But we have to know the extent of it. We cannot, at this point, there's a lot of friends who are losing jobs, who are sitting at home for three days a week, are being on furlough. It's, it's heartbreaking. Mm. I was wondering if you had any thoughts actually on um, how literature or the arts in general might respond to um, the kind of presence of pandemic because a lot of writers I've spoken to have said oh you can't write now it's too soon you can't write now it's too soon but I, I, I um, personally I think some of the greatest writing about events happen in the midst of them. Personally the, the, the writing is kind of happening. Mm -hmm. So I start, I tend to kind of start at some personal level. Mm -hmm. um, but what is also happening is a sense of what I call a kind of uh, impending grief, right? So there's a kind mm -hmm. of sense that we're going to lose something or someone. And the grief is definitely a bereavement. And it's not about losing a certain way of life or anything. It's more flesh and blood. It's like losing somebody close to your kind of sense, but it's all in the future, so it may not happen. And yet, that's the kind of feeling that a lot... I'm, You know, my preferred form is that of writing. And at any given moment, I'm in touch with some amazing people, writers, translators, and a lot of them in their 90s, like Philip Yakut, Romila Tapa, all kinds of people. And, you know, it's, it's interesting that at one level, there is a sense that writing is difficult. Some of them are writing. There's no predictability to when. Suddenly, time has become very much a, a sort of, you know, you're forgetting the days. There's no start to the week. There's no mm -hmm. day or night. It's a kind of fluid thing. So people mm -hmm. are doing that. What is not happening enough, which I'm getting across the board, um, is reading because everybody just assumes that we're all desperately now reading. Mm -hmm. The thing is, we were always desperately reading, only now it's kind of slowed down because that's that time of solitude when you sit in the book, when the anxiety creeps in because your guard is down. Mm. And you don't quite, it's not an anxiety that I can put numbers to. Item number one, this is why I'm anxious. Item number two is a kind of I don't know. It's a kind of collective weight. Uh, it, it, for me personally, it's also about you know looking after, providing all those notions, and then I talk myself out of it. But I think people in the arts, uh, people who are writing, uh, when they tell you that it's it's too soon, there is truth in it because I mean you're in the thick. You're you're. You're inhabiting the crisis, for God's sake. So mm. sometimes it's so up close that mm. the romantic notion that you can uh, write under situations of war, which people have written, and famine, which people have written and painted and performed. Both sides are true. There are some people who will and some who won't. 
um, that I, I have publisher friends who are saying, my God, we're suddenly getting every single manuscript that's been delayed just coming. Everybody's just finishing their stuff and sending it to us and then wanting it out because every author wants their book out immediately. So yeah. I, I don't think it's, it's a simple one. I, um, yeah. I certainly cannot even begin to comment or foresee what... I know it's going to be a different thing. I just keep saying this over and over again that we need a different way of working together. Yeah. It could be something simple, that it could be somebody like a Verso or a Pluto. Yeah, right? sure. And so these are people that you admire, you respect. And everybody is in the same boat. Everybody is, is worried. Everybody is wanting to look after each other. So there are ways of working together which do not involve necessarily money always. There are ways of working together which don't involve hierarchies of mergers or anything. It could be mm. something simple. It could be that you're producing 100 books for your distributor, suddenly you have money only for 30, and I was producing 100, and I have money for another 40. Perhaps you can combine forces and go to the distributor with 70 together as, mm. as, as notional joint imprints. I don't know, there are different ways. The trick is that whatever little you have, you have to learn to share it. Yeah. Every little bit has, they have to be, you know, we cannot any longer forget when things go back to what we see as a normal, old or new or mm. future or whatever, because I don't think it's going to be a balance unless we all give a little more than we normally would under so-called commercial uh, constraints or circumstances and so on and so forth. I'm talking of the smaller booksellers, the smaller independents, the smaller. It's like, you know, just about everybody I know in America is raising resources. And you're contributing. Uh, I've not, it's an instinct. You reach out in quite the same way that everybody else reaches out to you. Um, mm. I come in a, you know, but within the Indian cultural context, Philanthropy has a whole different meaning. It goes to religion and temples and education and street children and you know, all that kind of stuff. So everything else is seen as some kind of meaning. I know I can't raise resources here, but mm. you know, there are places where you can. So I think some of this is going to have to be a conversation when some degree of a kind of international opening up of a certain kind of trade happens, which means I can't just open up in Calcutta and expect to function with my books because you may be shut and XYZ in America or Germany may be shut. So we all have to be able to open enough because we are told on the 4th of May we might be open for two weeks. That's useless to me because what am I going to do in two weeks, right? Mm -hmm. And it, it, the printer may not be open, you know. One kind, in America, the printers are open because they're seen as essential services. In India, they aren't. So it's a mm. kind of, um, we had a whole ship lying outside very sweetly waiting for Chicago's warehouses to open because the shipment had already left. And then they delivered, they didn't charge us extra, the shipper was very kind. So there's all kinds of pitching in that will happen. All kinds of conversations will happen. And then we will be tested as individuals and organizations as to how we will continue to make our art and our 
objects of whatever we, you know, whatever our life's work is in terms of doing these books, because make no mistake, it is our life's work. Mm. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm sure everyone can relate that they hope you know, as much positive comes out of this situation as is possible and through cooperation. Um, on that sort of note, um, I just wanted to ask you quickly about Seagull Peaceworks, which is a, um, a foundation you started um, that seems to address those ideas of coexistence and community. Um, I was just wondering if you could tell us a bit about the origins of that and its role yeah, kind sure. of alongside your... It's a project of the Siegel Foundation and it started 2002. And um, so there's, for me, there was a certain political life before 2002, which was in the work I did. I was not a great uh, person for the barricades or being on the street or slogan shouting. And uh, something happened in 2002, which was basically a genocidal situation in mm -hmm. one of our states in Gujarat. Um, we, I just felt that I wanted to stand at a street corner and self-flagellate because it was very frustrating. And that's when we decided that we would do something using the arts we were familiar with by going to school children across the subcontinent. And in those days, you could actually do and invite and go and send to Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka. So we started Peaceworks, you know. It was basically something that was based on the premise that young kids have to learn to live with difference. That's how it started. But you cannot keep a communal harmony situation on the boil all the time. So then it slowly developed, uh, thanks largely to a colleague, uh, Megha Malotra, who runs it, uh, who just, you know, adopted this as a road and started uh, this wonderful History for Peace project and uh, started to intervene in curriculums of schools and uh, work with teachers. Uh, not easy because teachers are preoccupied only with syllabus, right? So to slowly win them, and it takes taken us a long time, and uh, set up an institute at a conference, which happens every year, uh, where teachers come from across the subcontinent. So the idea is really to look at you know notions of history, where the same event is looked at differently from Bangladesh, and looked differently from Pakistan, looks different from India, and what mm. does it mean to textbooks, and what are we teaching this speaker? And certainly in the current climate in yeah. our country and in the rest of the world, you know, where yeah. the forces I mean, that rewrite history are at play. Mm. So it's not easy. And we have no support. There is no funding, nothing. It's, it's um, you know, I it's, mean, it's... Just quickly on that note of the current yeah. situation, particularly in India, how do you see what is politically quite a fraught um, landscape? How do you see your readership and the role of peaceworks and, and books and what you do, how does that fit in and how do you feel you can... We, we um, just carry on in the sense that, you know, it's, it's, you're, you're always under the scanner. You, you don't have any illusions that you're under any radar. Hmm. You're allowed to be as long as you're allowed to be. So you carry on doing the books you do uh, as bravely as you can. You do the peaceworks program, you believe in it. Hmm. Uh, and there's no illusion about the fact that we carry on doing it as long as we're able to do it. 
and um, it's more and more essential and necessary that everybody does this and stands up and does it. Spaces, for example, have disappeared. All the bigger spaces, the institutional spaces, everything's been compromised. So we we use little spaces, little rooms uh, in different cities where you have gatherings of 30 people, 40 people. Uh, you know, you go to schools. Uh, you've now started to do handbooks of you know human rights using film, using theater, and circulate these and. Now we begin to do them online so that they just carry on in some form or the other. So you you do what you can, I guess. I mean, I, I don't have a, a, a master plan of resistance except being, uh, I guess, continually in the thick of it as long as it's allowed us. Yeah, and that, I mean, probably is the best form of resistance, doing yeah. what you do and doing it to the best of your ability, I suppose. Yeah, it's it's um, very admirable, and um, we we have a government, a right wing government here in England, but um, mm. it's very hard for uh, myself and Anthony to imagine um, the situation over there for you. Um, so yeah, incredibly admirable, um, and it's been a pleasure um, learning about a little bit about what you guys do and your philosophy and um, what you're about. Okay. Um, well, we'll we'll put your contact um, in in the link sure. in the Excellent. podcast, and we hope lots of people that have Thanks. listened to this really powerful conversation will get in touch and write to you, Naveen. Thank thank you so much for taking thank the you, time. Guys. Thank you, thank you so much. Take care, stay safe. Bye bye. Well, thank you so much to Naveen for that uh, illuminating talk. I think that part two of our Calcutta series has kind of given a fairly rounded view of what's happening in the city with regards to literature. Um, mm. It's been really cool to visit that part of the world. Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's number five of international publishers and authors and so on that we've had now. So it's it's been really special reaching out around the world and hearing uh, perspectives and stuff that are very different to our tiny little london bubble um do we have anything else to say Anne? oh yeah we do have some excellent content coming up uh, perhaps on friday or perhaps after that depending on well my laziness really um <laughs> we have the wonderful people from hustling verse speaking to somaya and we also have some other great authors and personalities lined up, but I won't tell you who they are. I'll leave you waiting with anticipation. But we've got some really cool stuff ranging from the underground to magic realism to contemporary London fiction. So we've got stuff from people of all persuasions. Um, also, pay attention to our Twitter and Instagram feeds. You may be hearing some announcements with regards to uh, movements towards Burley Fisher opening, perhaps. Yeah, just keep an eye on our Twitter. And if you have any emails, the email is podcast at burleyfisherbooks.com. Uh, or if you want to purchase any books, it's shop at burleyfisherbooks.com. And I think that will be... And you got anything else to add? Um, just if you want to check out what Seagull are up to, it's seagullbooks.org. And you can there's everything there on their site. Get in touch with them. They'd love to hear from you. Yeah, yeah, for real. And yeah, what great work they're doing. Awesome. Well, thank you everybody for listening. And it's goodbye for me, Dan Fuller. And it's goodbye from me, Aunt Hurley. Love and blessings.
Burley Fisher's Isolation Station was brought to you by the team at Burley Fisher Books. Your hosts today were Dan Fuller and Anne Hurley, joined by Naveen from Seagull Books. This show was co-produced by Dan Fuller and Anne Hurley, with music by Dear Brother. Cheers everyone for listening in and stay safe as ever. Peace.